So yeah, a lot of brokerages will have brokers that will transact different asset classes within their office. So you know, you got retail, office, self-storage, hospitality, multifamily, to name a few. And so like, let's, let's like a CBRE would be a big name brokerage, right? So CBRE is in a lot of big markets. Let's say Orlando CBRE, for example, you can go on their website, hit their hospitality team, and then whoever is manning that side of it, you can just call them directly and basically see if they have any hospitality assets that might fit your criteria. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and to date I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. Today, our guest is Rich Summers, and today we're digging into the topic of boutique hotel investing. Rich pivoted from multifamily investing to boutique hotels. Today, we're digging into how these deals work, what they look for in a deal, how Rich and his partners find deals, how they add value, how they operate the deals, where they look for deals, how they source the deals, so much more, everything around boutique hotel investing. So if you're looking for a way to get involved with vacation rentals, but short-term rentals don't sound quite right to you, boutique hotels may be the answer. Who knows? Today, we're going to dig into how these deals work and how you can decide for yourself. It's a very niche asset class that we actually have not discussed on the show yet, and Rich makes a great case for it. So a lot of fantastic lessons in this one. You're going to learn a ton. If you're an Apple Podcasts user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you're hearing my voice right now, that means you are not listening to us on YouTube. Just FYI, if you'd like to watch the video of these episodes, you can join us on YouTube. Check out the videos, see our guests and myself in person on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the thumbs up button and the notification bell, all that kind of a thing over there. If you'd like to check it out, find us on YouTube. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Once again, our guest is Rich Summers. We're talking about boutique hotel investing. Without any further ado, here we go. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. You have a varied real estate portfolio and strategy. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and what you invest in? Yeah. So uh, primarily, uh, traditionally, I was investing in multifamily real estate. I have about 300 units in the multifamily side. But just over the last year and a half with cap rates compressing and getting more competitive, there just seems to be a lot of money looking for the same types of assets within multifamily. Decided to pivot. And uh, right now, we're going all in on boutique hotels. I see an opportunity in this space and to pick up product from mom and pop sellers who are looking to retire. A lot of them are not implementing a lot of marketing strategies. So we can go in there and renovate these properties, relaunch, rebrand them, implement good operations. And uh, we have an in-house property management company, which we can lean on to where we can operate these properties free of on-site management, which allows us to, you know, three, four X the revenue and really force our value add that way. So that's what we're doing today. 
Great. Love it. So let's start with a few definitions. What is a boutique hotel so we can have like a framework in our minds when we're thinking about these assets in this conversation today? Yeah. So boutique hotel really is anything that's independent, non-franchise. We like the hotels that are anywhere from eight to 30 rooms in size because we can go in there, we can operate these properties free of on-site management. But think boutique is anything that's independent, non-franchise. Okay. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. So is this, are we talking like, what's a typical stay? Are we talking about more luxury assets? I mean, let's hone it down a little bit more and and think so we have like a really specific idea in our mind. Is this like a independent resort or, you know? Yeah. So we, we love this hired assets, but well-located. So we love coastal, East coast, West coast, coastal markets. We love beach cities, well-located assets. The more tired, the better. So typically these are properties that haven't traded in 20 plus years. They haven't been renovated in 20 plus years. And then we can go in there, we can shut down the operation, we'll uh, implement our renovation package, which typically is a little bit higher end. So we're doing, you know, LVP flooring throughout, quartz countertops, new kitchens, backsplash, that sort of thing. And so when we go ahead and relaunch, rebrand, we are competing with luxury hotels. Okay. So when you talk about like a, a new kitchens, backsplash, that kind of a thing, that that immediately, you know, is outside of what I was thinking is that when I think hotels, I don't think you know, of any kind of hotel. I typically don't think like kitchen. So these mm-hmm. longer term stays is this like this isn't like a one night type of stay. So yeah. you know it's a very niche type of type of thing. Yeah. So we love uh, hotels that have rooms of kitchens, living rooms, that sort of thing. One we just closed on recently, uh, ten rooms up in Northern California, beachfront. All the rooms have fireplaces, ocean views, and six of the ten rooms had living rooms with full kitchens, which is nice. I think a lot of travelers in, in today's age, actually post-COVID, prefer to have a little bit more space when they travel. But that said, you know, if we do find a well-located boutique hotel and the number is pencil under our model and they don't happen to have kitchens, it's still a deal that we want to buy, but it's really a case-by-case basis. Okay. Okay. And you mentioned, I want to dig a little bit into how you're adding value and growing the business, that kind of a thing. You mentioned renovations, of course, is a great example. You also, earlier on, I think touched on if they're not advertising. So that get, kind of gets into the management side of things. So let's break it down and learn where the value creation, you know, comes from and how that's driven. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you know, with technology and social media, there's a lot of uh, marketing platforms that you can utilize to drive bookings, such as Airbnb, Verbo, you got hotels.com, booking.com. A lot of these mom and pop sellers, for example, the property we just closed on two months ago, are not utilizing a lot of these marketing strategies. So the one we just bought, they were only relying on a direct booking website and no outside marketing platforms such as Airbnb or Verbo um, and nothing on social media. And so when you can pick up a property and they're not utilizing any of those measures, but they're still doing pretty good revenue annually, you know that there's a lot of upside there and value add. And the great thing about that type of value add is it does not cost a lot of upfront capital that you got to inject from an expense standpoint in order to drive that that NOI growth. Okay. So one of the things I wonder about Airbnb in particular is I've seen I've I've not I don't own short-term rentals is not what I invest in. I've just used them over the years. And sure. I noticed such a big change that it went from it used to be reasonable to stay like one night that kind of a thing, but there's been so much of a shift to higher end and also a lot bigger like cleaning fees. I run into that one a lot. Do you like incorporate that into your business or, th- or think about that at all? Like just have a higher nightly rate and a lower cleaning fee or like, how do you make those determinations? You know? Yeah. So we, we operate about 32 short-term rental listings and on the, the, the single family side, yes, we always charge a cleaning fee, but with the boutique hotel side, we do not charge a cleaning fee. 
But in terms of like how you size up the cleaning fee, typically a general rule of thumb is you don't want your cleaning fee to be less than your ADR, your average daily rate. So if your average daily rate is 200, you typically don't want your cleaning fee to be more than that if you would. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that's kind of gone a little nuts and there's probably been some... Oh, it's nuts. It's insane. And the cost of cleaning is what drives a lot of that in these different markets. So for example, we have a property in Scottsdale. It's a eight bedroom, eight bath mansion and it's a luxury property, but the cleaning fee we charge is a thousand bucks. And it's not because we're just charging it because of whatever, but our cleaners out there it's it's a nine hundred dollar expense for us, and so you know you factor in supplies and that sort of thing. So we're about a thousand dollars per clean, but you know the average guest there is dropping ten to fifteen thousand dollars to stay for a weekend. So for them to drop an extra thousand for cleaning is really not that big of a deal. Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's dig into the operations and that kind of a thing because we talk yeah. about cleaning. I mean, that's a big expense that all hotels and short term rentals have to deal with. But there's a lot of other things in place. You know, you have to get keys handed off and, you know, all those other stuff. So you're, it sounds like you're buying properties kind of, you know, scattered around the the country, various markets. How do you think about building teams on the grounds for the operation of these deals? Yeah, that's a great question. So whenever you go into a new market, you need two boots on the ground. It's one's housekeeping and you need maintenance. As long as you have housekeeping and maintenance, you can manage everything else remotely. You know, whether it's 24-7 guest communication, we are the people that do that for us are actually in the Philippines, which makes it, you know, it cuts down on the cost of, of labor, if you would. But in terms of a lot of the decision making and management, guest communication, accounting, all that stuff can be done remotely. You really just need the housekeeping and the maintenance. So if you go into a new market, if you can source those two things, it makes it a lot easier to scale and bring in two, three, four multiple units. Or in a boutique hotels case, for example, you might be bringing in 10, 20 at a time. Wow. Cool. Very cool. So one of my favorite conversations to have when it comes yeah. to real estate investing is about finding deals and your strategy for finding sellers, locating deals, all that kind of a thing. So how do you go and find a, a boutique hotel type of deal? Is this a mailers? Is it cold calls? Is there a brokerage out there that you can work with or several? Like, wh- yeah. How do you build your deal flow? Yeah, it's a combination of a few things. So obviously broker relationships is probably the number one arm all these brokers have relationships with all these hotel owners. And so it's really getting in and building those relationships and rapport with these brokers in the markets that you want to be in. Um, So we use CoStar. So let's say if we want to enter a new market, let's say it's Santa Barbara, for example, we can go on CoStar and see who the most active hotel brokers are within that market. And so we'll start with those top three or four brokers. We'll reach out to them. We'll build the rapport. We'll also go on LoopNet, sites like Crexy, and we can find listings on there you know, LoopNet doesn't always have the best deals, but sometimes you can find deals there. And you can call those brokers, introduce yourself, tell them your search criteria, and see if they might have some other deals that might fit your criteria. So that's one method. The other one is uh, direct mailers. So you can get, like through CoStar, for example, you can pull up a lot of the owner's informations that own these hotels, mailing address. Sometimes they even have emails and phone numbers. And so then you can cold call them, you can send them direct mailers, in that sort of thing. So it's it's a combination of on-market, direct-to-broker, and then direct-to-seller. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like you, you mentioned hotel brokers. So there's going to be a different individual at each brokerage that, that specializes in 
hotels or, or how do you kind of identify like the right person to go to at each brokerage? Is a, a That's a great event. question. So yeah, a lot of brokerages will have brokers that will transact different asset classes within their office. So, you know, you got retail, office, self-storage, hospitality, multifamily, to name a few. And so like, let's, let's like a CBRE would be a big name brokerage, right? So CBRE is in a lot of big markets. Let's say Orlando CBRE, for example, you can go on their website, hit their hospitality team, and then whoever is manning that side of it, you can just call them directly and basically see if they have any hospitality assets that might fit your criteria. Cool. So yeah. you mentioned transitioning out of multifamily into this um, boutique mm-hmm. hotel space. And one of the conversations that we always have in multifamily about finding deals sure. is the number of deals you're going to have to look at until you get one that's worth putting under yeah. contract. And it's a pretty significant mm-hmm. number of number of deals. Is it similar in boutique hotels? I mean, what's your kind of hit rate or interest rate yeah. ratio look like? Yeah. Then, then this is one of the reasons we we um, we pivoted over to boutique hotels is because there's so much money right now looking for the same types of assets within multifamily. So we found that we were underwriting 250 deals to maybe find one or two that had a, you know, that penciled decently under the pricing guidance. And then those one or two deals would happen to have 50 property tours and 35 offers. Mm-hmm. Now with the interest rates going up, uh, we're seeing a little bit of slowdown in, in that regard, but we pivoted over. So give you a, an idea, multifamily, you might have to underwrite 250 to find one that's worth submitting an offer on. On the hotel side, you might underwrite 30 to find one or two good ones to put an offering on. And so wow. it's just a better ROI on your time, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... I'm glad you mentioned interest rates. That kind of brings us to another area that I wanted to ask about, which is sure. debt. I mean, banks are, you know, and loans and all that kind of a thing is inextricable from real estate investing. So what kind of debt is there like SBA loans that are available for boutique hotels? What type of debt do you get? Yeah. So a lot of the deals that we're buying are steep value add deals are underperforming and the, typically they don't have the cash flow to support the price and guidance. Mm. And so we typically source uh, seller finance on the front end. Right now with this interest rate environment that we're in, there's a couple things that are actually a lot easier than they were six months ago. One of them, it's easy to it's easy to get seller finance right now because a lot of sellers know, hey, if I want to sell my asset, it's hard to get lending out there. So in a lot of these hotel owners, they bought their properties 30 years ago on seller financing. So they're already kind of used to how it works. So it's easy to obtain that. And it's also easy to get good contractors right now because there's a slowdown in work for these good contractors. And so we're utilizing a lot to that to our advantage right now. But to circle back to your question, we're buying these deals on the front end, typically seller finance or bridge loans. And then when we go to refinance out of these things in a perm debt, 18 to 24 months in, we're looking at either SBA financing, we're looking at traditional bank credit union financing. And there's a couple other ones out there that will finance for hotels. But some of these terms are pretty good. So SBA, for an example, they'll go up to 85% loan to value on a hotel where it's very challenging to find that on the multifamily side. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now uh, the allowable LTVs and multifamily have really- Yeah. I don't, I, I usually don't see anything more than 75% on the multifamily side. Yeah. yeah. You know? With rates going up, that dropped for a few people, uh, even even 75. Yeah. So, okay. Well, you can get SBA loans, but you know, on the seller financing side, and and I realize with seller financing, you're 
it's a lot more open. You have so many more options with seller financing, but sure. what are typical like terms that a seller might be interested in when uh, yeah. negotiating seller? So the one, the most recent one we just did was, uh, it was 70% loan to value, 6% interest only, five-year balloon payment with a uh, 54321 prepayment penalty. Okay. So not too bad. And so the seller will, you know, let's say they finance 70%. We'll go raise the rest with a down payment, rehab, holding costs. We'll go raise that from our investors. We'll be able to pay them a, a fixed 20% return paid monthly because these deals that we're buying have so much value add. Yeah. So when you mentioned that the <laughs> when you mentioned that the cash flow in place doesn't support the pricing guidance, that can be a bit yeah. of a concern because there's you you have to get the cash flow up in order to make the the business plan work, right? So how do you kind of navigate that, explain that to your investors and just think about that? Because I, I like to have cash flow in place when I buy an asset, but it's kind of yeah. tough to do that these days. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, because, uh, you know, the income approach is what NOI divided by cap rate gives you the valuation, mm -hmm. right? So if you're going to strictly go off of that, a lot of these deals that you're buying might be in the red, negative cash flowing deals, right? So if you're going strictly off of that model, really, you're saying that this this hotel is worth zero dollars, right? But um, at a certain point, um, you got to be willing to go there on the front end, buy below the, you know, at a lower cap rate because you know there's so much upside on the back end. So how do you explain that to investors? You just say, hey, look, this is, these are what the comps are selling for in this market. We're picking it up at this discount. We're going to inject all these capital improvements in it. And then in 18 months, through the capital improvements and our operations, we're going to three to four X the value of this property. And then we're going to refinance out. And that's how we're going to have our big payday. So yes, they're not going to be, a lot of cash flow on the front end, but once we refi, there will be. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So I think it's important to get inside the heads of some of these sellers. And when you say, tell me, when you mentioned negative cash flow, that makes me think, oh man, they must be terribly distressed, but they've owned these assets so long and you're willing to pay a, a fairly high valuation, if I'm understanding correctly, at least based on the cash flow. So yeah. Why are the sellers generally selling? Are they severely distressed or they're just like, hey, you know, it's time for me to get out of the business? A lot of them are retiring. So there's just a lot of boutique hotel owners out there that, you know, are in their 60s, 70s, 80s. They've owned these hotels for 30 years. A lot of them, for a lot of them, it's, this is their only asset they've only, they've owned. And so they're not experienced operators and they're just not up with the technology and that sort of thing. So for them, it's like, hey, we're retiring. We can make a return because we bought these properties 30 years ago. And yes, we are underperforming, but there's operators out there that know that they can, you know, make so much on the back end. So they're willing to give them something that works for them. And also because they're retiring, they don't, they would, they prefer to keep the mailbox money. And so they actually like the seller financing. They don't want this big taxable event. And the coolest part about it on our end is a lot of these sellers that are providing the seller finance, they're going to become our largest investor when we go to pay them back because they're going to see us come in two, three X the value of their property. We pay them back. Guess what they're going to do with that money afterwards? They're going to give it right back to us for our next deal. Mm. That's a beautiful thing. Okay. So you're giving them a, basically a further investment opportunity, I guess. I, I mean, is there a, is there a way to work the 1031 tax deferred exchange into this setup? I don't even know. I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if they want to reinvest their capital, but. You know, you you maybe can offer them some way to defer their their tax taxable event, but it might not be a uh, might not be possible. I think how you could structure that is is like let's say they have the first lien position, and you go to refi. Um, you could just switch them. You could just switch them from the first lien to the second lien, right? 
So like you go to refi, the new lender is going to take the first lien and then they could keep their money with you in second lien position. Mm -hmm. And then you can maybe reinvest those dollars. I don't know if that's a backdoor way of doing it. Probably want to reach out to a legal counsel and see, but that is a creative idea. Okay, cool. It's good to, good to keep it creative. So now yeah. that we've broached into the, the tax region, you know, folks, especially in multifamily, always want to talk about cost segregation, you know, accelerated dis- depreciation, all these things, yeah. potential tax benefits for the passive investors in these deals. What do those look like in the boutique hotel space? What are your potential tax advantages? Yeah. So what our model is right now is the steep value add stuff. And so we're not even giving investors equity. We're actually, they're actually investing in our deals in the form of debt. Mm. And so with the last one, what we did was we created an investor LLC and that investor LLC lent a promissory note to the hotel LLC. Personally guaranteed, they get 20% fixed monthly cash flow, paid monthly. <clears throat> even when we shut down the property and we're renovating, they're still getting their monthly payout. And then when we go to refinance the property in 18 to 24 months, that new loan proceed that we refinance into is enough to pay off the seller note and the investor note. The investors are, are happy because they're getting fixed 20% cash flow without taking any risk. I don't know where else they can get 20% right now. I know it's not in the stock market. So they're happy. They get their money back in a year to two. Traditional syndications, their money's tied up for five to seven years. A lot of people don't like that, you know? And so... Uh, money like speed, right? And so they're able to get the t- fixed 20% return, no risk. We take all the risk. We get the money back in one to two years. And then at the refi, if they want to roll their money into another deal with us and get, you know, continue to get 20%, they can do so if they wish. Wow. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. That's, that's huge interest. So we briefly touched on, but didn't super dig into, but, you know, location, 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 you know, you talk, talk about buying in various markets, but sure. what kind of market level due diligence are you doing when looking at these, these deals? Because I would imagine you're not just calling every hotel broker in the country and saying, Hey, what, you know, boutique hotels do you have? You're probably narrowing that list down and saying, yeah, I'm interested in this market. I'm not interested in this market. What do you do there? Yeah. So we're looking at a few different fundamentals within the market. So one is sales comps. So we're picking up a hotel for 4 million. In order for our model to work, we know we got to, we need a clear path to double the value of that property. So we're buying it for four. We know it's got to be worth 8 million a year from now or whenever we're done with our business plan. And so we'll look at sales comps and see if that's in the realm. If there's no realms that justify us doubling the value, then either we got to submit an offer that works for us at a much lower price or we just pass and move on. So that's one. Uh, number two is we're looking at the ADRs, average daily rate and the occupancy in any given market. So are the current ADRs much lower than what they would be after we renovate the property and bring in good fundamentals and good operations? If the answer is yes, and we can fundamentally double or triple those ADRs, then it's a hotel that we want to look at. Um, and then the last thing is the location. You know, a lot of these assets that you pick up in the middle of the country, it's like they're on the side of these roads. It's like, yeah, we can renovate these properties all we want and bring in A plus operations but we're never going to truly gain a lot of wealth because these are not hotels that are, you know, visited or traveled by a lot of tourists around the country. So we like well-located assets in beach cities, uh, stuff that's oceanfront, stuff to where we really hit it at the park with our renovation. Uh, we can, you know, double or triple the, the ADR if you would. And so those are kind of the metrics that we're looking for. And then also the last thing I'll throw in is the regulatory environment towards short-term rentals in any particular city or municipality. I think that plays big into these ADRs. So I'll give you a couple examples. Scottsdale, Arizona right now, it's like the wild, wild west for short-term rentals. There's 6,000 short-term rentals right now. So a hotel in Scottsdale 
it's probably not going to do as good as a hotel in an area that, let's say, you know, Nashville, for example, they got some pretty strict short-term rental regulations, good, good tourism market. In an area like Nashville, there's going to be a lot more demand for a hotel because there's stricter short-term rental regulations, if you would. So we're always looking at that kind of stuff. And we'd love to get into a market to where there's pending or, you know, there's short-term rental regulations coming down the pipeline in the next six months. We'd love to pick up a hotel in a market like that as well. So in your case, you're looking for areas that have more restrictive STR uh, regulations, thereby kind of buoying the demand for hotels, right? Normally, folks are kind of going the other direction and when we're talking in this space because we're talking about generally short-term rentals, but you're going the other way. You're looking at hotels, different situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. So it's a little bit contrarian, I guess, if you would, to the short-term rental play. We have a bunch of short-term rentals. We were doing a lot of that stuff. But, you know, just right now with where we are in the market cycle with this interest rate environment, we've completely pivoted over to boutique hotels. It's just economies to scale. We don't have to worry about the regulatory environment changing. We don't have to worry about the neighbors. You know, neighbors complain about a boutique hotel. We can tell them to fuck off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) okay so you mentioned you're looking at sales comps what basis are you considering that is it dollars per source dollars per square foot dollars per door uh dollars per bed what what basis price per door is the price per door is the main thing obviously it's going to vary if you have large units some have kitchens some don't but for the most part we're looking at price per door so we're buying a deal at one hundred thirty thousand a door we know, hey, can we exit or can we can we have an ARV of double that, which would be two sixty a door? And so we need to go and find sales comps that can justify the two sixty a door. If it's not there, then you know, let's say it's a rural market, then we need to we need to expand our search a little bit and look at some other markets that are surrounding that are similar that we could pull. And if we have those comps, great. If not, it's just simply not a deal that we're going to buy with investor capital. Gotcha. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Love Very it. cool. Yeah. It's it's a interesting niche. We see a lot of people running into STRs from longer term rentals and that makes a lot of sense, but not a lot of people going to hotels or or boutique hotels. So that isn't common. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Rich, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's go. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah. So I would say uh, it was one I did recently. It was a uh, a deal I 1031 exchanged into. I had sold a 32-unit building in Indianapolis. And at 1031, we did a tick, tenants in common. So my partners were able to go their own way. And I 1031 my proceeds into a luxury property in Scottsdale. It was a five-bedroom, seven-bath on 1.2 acres and did a full renovation. I bought it on a hard money loan. They did 80% loan to cost. They financed 80% of the uh, the, the rehab. And uh, did about a five and a half month full renovation. We converted it into eight bedrooms, eight baths. It's seventy six hundred square foot square feet, 
It's got a volleyball court, pickleball court. Wow. It's got a, a full basketball court, putting green. We did a, a speakeasy. We did a fitness room. <laughs> it's sick. And so we bought that thing for 2.4, put about 750 into renovations. And uh, it just appraised, I just refinanced it about a month and a half ago. It appraised at 4.89. So uh, that was pretty nice. Pulled the money out when we, we actually just put that thing online a couple months ago. And uh, we got MGK actually is staying at this property for Super Bowl week. So wow. it's pretty exciting. Yeah, Beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So we, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. So I'm going to say the worst investment is actually a, a an it was a, a deal that I didn't buy, but although it didn't buy it, it was uh, I lost money on the deal. And so it was, a, I think it was about a $5 million deal. The EMD was 100K, got past the due diligence period and decided it was it, we needed to cancel the contract because we did not have the answers that we needed in order to execute on our business plan. It was something to do with the refinance. And so ended up canceling that, that contract. And with that, the seller would not release the EMD. And it was 100K. And so got a legal team involved. They started writing letters back and forth. And you know, these legal fees start adding up really quickly, right? EMD is 100K. And so we're about $15,000, $20,000 in. And uh, the attorney's like, hey, look, like, you know, like, you're probably best just settling. And so we reached out with the, the seller and he's like, hey, like, if you just cough up 20 grand, I'll release the rest of it. And so I ended up just doing that, but it was a $20,000 lesson learned. Wow. So there was the 20 grand plus the, the legal fee. So did that, was that net 20 grand? Uh, it was net 20 grand. Yeah. Okay. It was the, the total loss. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, at least it wasn't, at least it wasn't a hundred, but uh, that's the risk of <clears throat> earnest money deposits. I know. I know. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. I think for me, it's really mindset in taking action. Um, the second that I have an idea and, and I think I need to do it, you just got to do it. You just got to go out there and do it. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, if you don't have all the answers, you got to just go do it and you'll figure it out. I think the second you get into a planning phase and you start going over all the different outcomes and is it worth it? Should I not do it? What's the best approach? What's the best plan to move forward? I think that's when you start to lose your momentum. Um, and so for me, it's just all about taking action. As soon as I have that good idea, like, hey, let's just jump in. Let's do it. We'll figure out how later. And that's when I've seen the most growth, at least in my in my career. I love that. And, you know, if something scares you like that, that's sometimes a sign that you should definitely go for it. Not always. Not absolutely. always. Sometimes. Well, absolutely. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, they want to find you on Instagram. You have a ton of followers. Very impressive or anything like that. Where can they track you down? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very active on social media. I do a lot of how-to videos on my Instagram. It's at uh, rich underscore summers, S-O-M-E-R-S. Dropping a brand new podcast and YouTube channel. It's called The Rich Summers Report. Uh, that's going to be dropping on December 13th. Um, and that's really get around interviewing in person. You know, people have, have made a big name for themselves, whether they're an athlete, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and that sort of thing in, in hopes to inspire others. And then if you want to learn more about our investments in Boutique Hotels, summerscapital.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. 
I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.